You're listening to a podcast hosted on the Podcaster Matrix. Get your entire podcast library hosted now at podcastermatrix.com. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Is social media right for you as a physician? Is it worth the hassle? Can it be beneficial to your practice? How can you increase your presence on social media if you already use it? Today on the podcast, we will have some sports medicine social media gurus join us to answer these questions and more. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Halstead, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. So today I'm excited to be joined by three guests, all of whom are social media gurus. Dr. Aaron Gray is a primary care sports medicine physician at the University of Missouri in Columbia. He completed medical school at the University of Tennessee, his family medicine residency at the University of Missouri, followed by his sports medicine fellowship at UCLA. He has worked with U.S. soccer, youth national teams, and currently is the medical director for the integrated healthcare team at the University of Missouri, as well as the Human Performance Institute. Dr. Caitlin Mooney is a pediatric sports medicine physician who completed her medical school at Vanderbilt University, go doors, followed by her pediatric residency at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston, followed by her sports medicine fellowship at Rainbow Babies in Cleveland. She currently practices sports medicine in Texas at UT Health in San Antonio. And finally, Dr. David Howell is the lead researcher at Children's Hospital Colorado Sports Medicine. He is an athletic trainer and received his PhD in 2014 from the University of Oregon and completed a postdoctoral research program at Boston Children's Hospital in 2017. His research investigates the areas of pediatric concussion and human movement analysis and has authored over 90 publications in peer-reviewed journals. Welcome to all of you to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. We are all well familiar with each other personally, but probably even more so through social media. Part of the reasoning to do this is we had a very well-attended session at the PRISM meeting, so that's the Pediatric Research and Sports Medicine program, where each of us were panelists talking about social media. David spoke on social media to create a research brand. Aaron talked about how personal you should be on social media. Caitlin discussed various resources and platforms to help assist with social media. And I discussed Twitter and how to get traction on tweets and dealing with trolls. So we'll discuss all of these things today, but first and foremost, how about each of you let our listeners know how to find you on Twitter or other social media that you may use? And we'll start off with David. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Thanks for having us on today. really appreciate the opportunity and, and great to connect with three of you again. Primarily, I'm on Twitter. You can find me at HowellDR is my handle. Pretty much that's the only one I use. How about Caitlin? Thanks for the invitation. This is a great opportunity and a lot of fun to be doing during a time when we're all a little bit more isolated than normal. My Twitter handle and my Instagram handle are the same. It's Caitlin Mooney MD, which is C-A-I-T-L-Y-N-M-O-N-E-Y-M-D. And Aaron? Yes, thanks so much for having me on here. It's fun to be on. I've, I've been excited to hear some of your podcasts so far in your series and look for many other great ones. Um, so I am at Mizzou Sports Doc. So if you don't know how to spell Mizzou, it's M-I-Z-Z-O-U. And actually kind of has been interesting with that because when I first started off, I guess about nine years ago here, no one knew who I was. And I thought that I could latch on a little to that brand recognition of where I worked. But it's interesting now, if I did it, I maybe would change it to my regular name. And so maybe that's something that we can do, you know, hash out a little bit later on. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I think as I was getting into social media, I wasn't sure if I wanted to have my actual name on the actual handle or not. And so I, I'm STL SportsMed. And so kind of the same line as you doesn't have my actual name. I know you can still find us all on there, but it makes it a little bit more challenging. But I agree with that. We'll have all that information in our show notes. So you'll be able to reference that if you uh, look at our show notes so you can follow each of us if you'd like. Now that we have our social media formalities out of the way, let's start off by talking a little bit about social media just in general. I'm kind of a Twitter nut. Some of us call us pediatricians who tweet tweetiatricians. That and Facebook are my two main social media platforms. One is professional for me, which is the Twitter. And then Facebook is personal outside of my Facebook presence for these podcasts. And Caitlin, you really gave a great talk on this at Prism. And can you talk about some of the various platforms that are out there for healthcare providers that they may want to consider when getting into social media? Sure. I think one of the biggest obstacles to starting social media, especially as a physician or a medical professional, is just the time and trying to figure out where you want to make your mark. And I think there's still something where it is helpful to think about where you most want to fit in, because each platform has slightly different things that it's geared for. For example, Instagram is very visual. It's great to have a picture and then post some content with it. I think the best Instagram profiles for medicine, though, are really focused on either infographics or something that is particularly visual, although you could always write something and then just post a related picture. And then Twitter's it's originally microblogging, communicating with people in short form. And then Facebook is a good platform to use if you're trying to touch base with potential patients or more marketing sorts of things, which hasn't been something that I've personally done. The great thing about some of the integrating platforms is they're time-saving because you can post to more than one platform at once. I also like that it can store all of your passwords in one account, which is helpful. So even if you, you can use toggle buttons to pick maybe just Instagram or Twitter and leave off your Facebook, in that way, You can only go to one screen and you don't have to be multitasking on different screens to put the same thing. I used to put some of the same content on Twitter and Instagram just by copying and pasting. And when I did this talk, I definitely got a little bit better about doing some of these time-saving techniques. The highlights of most of the free accounts are pretty similar, although there's slight differences. Almost all of the platforms that integrate your accounts allow you to schedule to some degree. Some even recommend times that your tweets or posts go out. A lot of them have analytics, but a lot of those you have to pay for those functions. And then they allow you to broaden your reach because if you're, say, doing mostly Twitter, but then everything automatically goes to Instagram, you'll find that you still get some followers on your Instagram, even if you're not gearing your post towards Instagram. And I find that I get different followers on my Instagram than, say, my Twitter, which is interesting as well. You can see what they're doing and kind of see what the sports medicine gurus of Instagram are doing or some other platform because they'll tend to follow you on that platform. So the three or four integrating platforms I found more helpful than some of the more expensive ones. Hootsuite, where you can schedule your post and you can post to more than one platform at a time. A lot of these also allow you to edit so that it's more geared to certain platforms than the other. The one thing I thought was really helpful about this one was the free media library. You can put pictures that are not copyrighted, and that's really helpful. 
or creative commons sorts of media. Then there's Buffer, also allows you to schedule or queue your posts and then allows you to pick a particular time. I like to use both of these, say on the weekend, and then I'll schedule several for the week. That way, even if I'm not actually present, I'm still having posts go up. TweetDeck is really helpful for Twitter. You can monitor list of people or list of topics, which I find very helpful. It's almost like my news source for the social media world if I log in. And then you can also schedule on there, but that's only for Twitter. And then Recur Post, which is R-E-C-U-R-P-O-S-T, you can schedule. And I think this actually is probably the most powerful platform that's free if you actually choose to get more involved in planning out your content, if you have a social media plan, because you can create a content library, which you could store for example, photos or blog posts that you might want to reuse should it come up. I know one of the hardest things for me is I might have tweeted about something in the past or posted something in the past and then a current event happens that it would be really useful to post the same thing. And the other interesting thing that that platform does is it can recommend hashtags so that you can get the right ones that are trending out there as well. And then the other thing that I think is always helpful is just to keep in mind that there are free stock photo websites that can be really helpful as well. You know, I've kind of had the philosophy myself. I just use pretty much Twitter from a professional standpoint. I've always looked into that idea of doing some scheduled tweets. I just have never gotten around to that. So we'll make sure to have some of those references, some links to the different platforms that Caitlin discussed for in our show notes. So you can make sure to look at those as potential options. I think that scheduling tweets thing, I think is helpful, especially if you have kind of a, an idea in place. You know, one of the things I did a year or two ago is I did a basically a tweet a day for Brain Injury Awareness Month, and I highlighted basically different types of research or different kind of little one-liners about different things related to brain health. So those can be helpful, certainly for that type of thing. Do either Aaron or David, do you guys use anything that kind of helps streamline your post or do you just kind of just go at it when, when it's the time comes? Yeah, I'm, I'm the same as you, Mark. I, I, I've always thought that it would be really helpful to uh, schedule things. And, and I think some of the stuff that Caitlin is talking about is, is really helpful to, to think about, but it's mostly kind of stream of consciousness for better or worse. Yeah, I'm the same way. You know, I'm always inspired by Caitlin whenever I hear this. So maybe over the next month, you'll see me start scheduling some tweets. But I do think you have to be a little cautious about scheduling tweets that if you schedule something and then some big natural disaster or something happens and you're tweeting out things that are just not necessarily appropriate during that time, it's just something always to be cautious. And you'll see a lot of corporations that will sometimes make these kind of mistakes. Let's talk a little bit more about how to establish your presence on social media as a healthcare professional. Any tips or suggestions that that each of you may have? And I'll, I'll let Aaron start with this. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the important things is figuring out like what site you're going to use. And I would, I mean, for most things in medicine, I would recommend Twitter as a great option. And um, I'm definitely biased because that's what I'm mainly on. But to start off on Twitter, you know, the first thing you're going to need is to get a name. I think you can keep it simple and descriptive, just kind of who you are, briefly what you do. You can always go back and edit that later. So don't stress about that. Uh, Next is you need some good high resolution pictures. You need a good headshot, something that when people will click on it. It makes a good first impression. You really want to zoom in as much as you can on your face for that picture because it's going to be shrunken down in the normal timeline. And then the banner picture, I think, also is key. And so the banner picture is very much in a 
widescreen view. And so it uh, lends itself to, if you have an interesting picture of your campus or your institution or just of nature, something interesting related to what you do, that you want to think of something that is more, it's not tall, but is definitely wide. And you also want that to be high resolution. And then the bio. I mean, most people, when they click on your profile, they're going to immediately go to your bio. And so I think having links or information on your institution, your current role, maybe at previous places that you've trained, someone who does some academic research, and, and David does a good job with this as well, you know, having some thoughts about what are your, some, your research topics, I think, are good. Uh, and then also you can have a link to your physician or your academic profile at your institution where people can get more information. And so that way you don't have to feel like you have to say everything about yourself in that bio, but you want it to be pretty short and sweet. So someone, you know, in that short space can get to know you. I think those are good points. Uh, David, anything that you want to add as far as getting started? Yeah, I think it can be a little bit intimidating at times, honestly, getting started. One good way that I've heard is just create an account and just start following people that seem interesting to you, whatever your interests are. If you're a little bit hesitant, you don't have to tweet anything. You don't have to say anything. You can just kind of exist in the background and see how people interact and how they go forth with information dissemination or how they reach out to people. That is really how I got started. And just kind of as you follow some key people, maybe in the field of sports medicine or some of your other interests. Um, that'll kind of lend itself to seeing other people that pop up and the algorithms. I don't know how they're created for Twitter as far as what shows up on your feed, but they do a pretty good job of identifying, you know, things that are kind of relevant to you based on who you follow. And from there, it kind of progresses. And then maybe you start liking some posts or retweeting some things. And over the time, you kind of get comfortable with sharing a little bit about what your thought is on a scientific paper. For example, you retweet it and you say, hey, this is a really good study that has helped me implement this in my clinical practice. And so that just gradual transition into the world of Twitter specifically, I think is important to realize. You don't have to jump in head first, so to speak. Looking back, my Twitter profile, I joined almost eight years ago now, but it really was probably about two years ago that I had what I kind of referred to as my tipping point tweet, where there was the instance that came out that they were talking about the new concussion blood test. And so I had a little five point tweet because I got a little frustrated when I saw that come out and all the inaccuracies that were being put out in the media at that time. And that tweet went kind of crazy. And so, and not certainly viral like the president would or, or somebody else like that, but it, from a sports medicine standpoint, pretty decent. So I'm like, wow, well, this is actually a platform that I can use to get points across. And, and I think that's kind of the way I've utilized it since then. It really kind of spurred my interest once I had one of those tweets that kind of took off and that I, I could have an influence. And I think, you know, it's really just kind of a matter of having your own approach to it. You could be like one of those lurkers, like David was referring to, and you're just kind of hanging out there and just watching what everybody has and get your information through that. Or, or you can be more active on it and it, you have to kind of decide on your focus as far as how you want to be active. And one of the things I wanted to ask about, and, and you can touch on this, Aaron, because I know you have this, you have both a professional and a personal Twitter account. Can you talk about the pros and cons of having each of those? Yeah, so I really don't use Facebook. And I think that's what most people use for their personal. For me on Twitter, my personal account is public. So I don't have either one secure or locked down. I strongly believe that anything that you post or share online, you need to be comfortable with it being visible to everyone everywhere forever. And so, you know, my personal account is where I'm talking about US soccer and the Cardinals and technology and video games, those kind of things where like I, my academic, my professional like followers, like they're not 
not going to necessarily care about that as much. And so for me, it's really just like split interest and like split in timelines of different things that I follow. So it's allowed me to, I mean, I just go back and forth throughout the day. And I really, kind of like Caitlin was saying earlier, consume a lot of my news. I stay up on my medical research, hear what's interesting, sports medicine fields. I do that through Twitter. I mean, I follow interesting, really smart people. And I feel that what's interesting to them and relevant to them probably should be interesting and relevant to me. I have not had the the difference in two accounts. I, I specifically have my own one Twitter account, and then I have Twitter accounts for my podcasts that I run individually for those. I've had a little different philosophy as far as kind of having a separate personal account. I, I've kind of been my philosophy is kind of I'm all in. So you're going to know everything about me. You're going to know my, for better or worse, you're going to know potentially my political views, or you're going to know my personal interests and things like that. And I think for me, and, and again, I think this is a comfort level for everybody out there as far as how you decide to do that, of whether or not you want to mix those two things. And and I think you can certainly go down the route of what Aaron does. And I think he does an excellent job with this as far as having that professional account and having everything basically towards that medicine side, or you can mix it up. And I think it really just comes down to your comfort factor. I agree. I think this is a personal how comfortable you feel with how much you want out there. I think it's really important to know that everything on the internet is always potentially findable. Keep that in mind. I do think in some ways it's hard to separate a personal self and a professional self. And kind of like I talk to my patients about some of my hobbies. I just find that a lot of them do tie into sports medicine. So I I do like to share a little bit of who I am as well. I definitely have a lot more personal stuff like travels, cycling, and my dogs on there. And I do find that it's interesting how many people you can find who are actually in sports medicine who really I became really good friends with even on other platforms like Strava or not because they love dogs, they love biking and they're in the sports medicine field. So it's in some regards, it's figuring out where you want to draw your own personal line. I think that being able to create whatever identity you want and being thoughtful about that online as far as your online presence goes is kind of really the approach that I've taken. And that can be anything and it ranges. And and I don't think that there's a right or wrong way, but it, as you said, Mark, it kind of depends on your level of comfort, but I do think that there's an advantage to sticking within whatever it is that you have created, however wide, broad, narrow, whatever that is, because people that follow you are accustomed to seeing that for a lot of reasons. And so I do think that there's, there's probably some intentionality that should probably go into that, but it can also evolve over time. It doesn't have to stick to be one thing specifically. I certainly think from if I post something personal, if you're looking at numbers of likes or retweets or things like that, that certainly is much, much, much lower than something that's more medically related. So obviously, you can get an idea of what people are interested in as far as your content based on what people like and and retweet and comment on and things like that. And then you can kind of decide from there if you want to go from there. I want to touch on this a little bit because this is out there and we all deal with this and talk a little bit about the anonymous account as far as a profile. And so I'll let Aaron kind of comment on this a little bit, you know, say, and what we mean by an anonymous account is that you don't identify yourself as that you have some kind of thing that you're hiding behind, so to speak. So some different kind of Twitter handle and you won't identify yourself as who you are professionally and you tweet that way. So Aaron, you want to comment about that possibility? 
Yeah, I think that is kind of a fascinating use. Um, And, you know, there are multiple people in different areas across sports medicine and physicians that do that. I mean, for me, as I look at my purpose on social media, and I do think that that's one of the most important first things that you should think about is like, why are you doing this? You know, what is your purpose? I mean, for me, it is to build connections with colleagues, you know, from across the country and around the world. And so that's one of the main ones. And so to do that, I need people to know who I am. You know, if I have an anonymous account and I'm, you know, at a national meeting, I can't be like, oh, I'm anonymous sports medicine doc. You know, like it, this is not going to work. You know, I've always tried to be, you know, transparent about who I am. But on the flip side, I actually have communicated with some anonymous accounts. And some of it has been just because of very intense kind of trolls against them that they felt like they needed to get out like important information and have an important point of view. But they felt so much backlash because of some of these points of view that they didn't feel like it was worth having their name attached to it. And so that was kind of an interesting perspective that I hadn't heard before that made me take a little bit of pause and not necessarily just downplay or, you know, shake my head at every anonymous account. Yeah. And I think it kind of depends too, because, you know, you can take the approach of what you talked about that someone had to go behind an anonymous account. And then you go the opposite way of that people use anonymous accounts to be snarky and to be critical and to kind of have the no holds barred so they can basically post whatever they want, don't feel like they have any consequences. But certainly, you know, I've seen this as time has gone on being involved in Twitter and other social media platforms that eventually people can put two and two together, and they can oftentimes find out who that person is behind that anonymous account. And then it becomes, well, now, as Aaron said before, everything you've put out there on social media is out there. So if you find out who that person is behind the anonymous account, and they have some pretty nasty posts, that can come back and bite you in a different way. We are going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more about social media for healthcare professionals. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great, cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. Kimmy, you're listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. We're back with Dr. David Howell, Dr. Aaron Gray, and Dr. Caitlin Mooney, and we are discussing social media and how you can use it as a healthcare professional. Let's switch gears a little bit. David, you're an excellent researcher. You're the guru out of the group of us, and you've used Twitter to your advantage to promoting research, both yours and others. You know, I've certainly promoted and commented on research things through various social media channels. Can you tell us a little bit about how you can use social media to help in the areas of promoting or even conducting research? You know, I think that at least at Prism, kind of the the theme of my talk was creating this quote unquote research brand. There is uh, a lot of different uses that you can uh, use Twitter specifically to your advantage. And I think there's, again, a number of different ways you can get creative with it. Number one, it's a really good way to, like I said earlier, disseminate information about the latest, the greatest, or even some historical kind of information, data studies, things like that in your area. 
And I've tried to use it really as a signal amplification tool. The more people that are reading high quality work of people that I know and I respect or the, the work that I've done that I'm really proud of, I think that that really helps to spread the word and to get the things out there that you want to have out there. In addition to that, you also get to kind of connect with people because it's almost a compliment, right? When somebody posts, a, hey, I published this study and somebody retweets it or comments on it. And, 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 you know, somebody that I maybe don't know and they say, hey, this is a great study. I've incorporated this into my clinical practice, for example. That really means a lot to me because at the end of the day, when it comes to research, it's what's the point of it if we're not actually incorporating it into or using it to incorporate into our clinical practice, right? You know, I, I think a good example is actually Aaron and I had interacted on Twitter a, a couple of times before actually meeting in person. And, and I think maybe Aaron, you came up to me at AMSSM last year or the year before or something like that. You said, hey, uh, you know, we, I, I know you from Twitter. And so it's a it's been a good way to connect with other clinicians and researchers across platforms. It brings, the field of sports medicine specifically, brings together a really multifaceted and diverse pool of individuals. And it's fun to see the different perspectives and, and kind of get to know people a little bit before you go to a conference and see them in person. And in a lot of ways for the, you know, the younger kind of trainees that are up and coming that are maybe a little bit nervous to see somebody or introduce themselves at a conference, you know, there's almost introductory period where you can get to know them a little bit, you know, maybe reach out to them on Twitter and say, hey, I really liked the study that you did, or I see that you're presenting, I'd like to talk to you at some point. And maybe it's a little bit less formal than an email. But I, I do feel like, uh, at least in the situations that that's happened to me, it's been a really positive experience. The, the other kind of two things that I think that I've used it for is to find research and kind of identify just through my Twitter newsfeed, new articles that have been published that, you know, I, I happen to be doing a study on a very similar thing right now. And I see a paper that's, oh man, that's really cool. That's related to what we're doing. I'm, you know, I'm going to cite it in my introduction or my discussion or something like that. And it's a good way to kind of know what other people are doing in the, in the field rather than being glued to PubMed because, you know, that can be pretty exhausting. And then I've also used it, and I've actually seen this on Twitter a little bit recently, given our, our current state of social isolation of people having virtual journal clubs. I attended a virtual seminar earlier this week where there was a group of students talking about one of the papers that, that we had done. And it's a really great way to engage with authors directly and ask them something that maybe isn't clear in their study. I mean, I, I know that the studies that I've written perhaps aren't always the clearest or there's some sort of area of contention or whatever. And, and I'm always happy to, to have that conversation. Somebody can ask me, hey, why did you put this in here? I say, well, this is, you know, kind of the background. And then you kind of all get on the same page and maybe it helps to give a different depth to the study. And that's been, a, again, a really positive experience. And then on kind of the last thing you had said, Mark, on the area of actually conducting research, I think that there's been a lot of effective ways of actually, a survey is a good example. We just completed a survey where we had found a Facebook group of a very specific group of individuals that were kind of the target audience for exactly what we were studying. So we posted the survey link within this Facebook group, posted it on Twitter, and within a few days, we had over 500 responses. And so I think that there's a methodologically, there's probably some limitations with that approach. But if you want to get a large amount of people responding to a survey online, social media is probably the best way that we have to do that rather than, you know, knocking door to door at this point. Absolutely. I mean, I've certainly seen plenty of links to survey studies and along those lines. And, you know, what you talked about is that collaborative nature as far as being able to find people with like-minded interest in the field and then being able to follow those people and then find more people that are interested. You can really kind of work well into developing a multi-center study potentially. Obviously, we have the organization of PRISM that helps us collaborate greatly from that standpoint. But 
you know, we've looked at ways to potentially use social media there. You know, I think you can also find lots of people who do have that heavy research posting influence. Bill Barr, I think of in Concussion World as an example, he is constantly posting things related to little summaries as far as research. Certainly, if you are interested in particular topics, you can find the journals. Most journals are going to have a Twitter presence and you can follow those and then you can see stuff that comes out that they are highlighting from their journal. So I think those are, are great ways to kind of keep involved with current research. And that's a that's a way that I like to do that too. And then I oftentimes will send the link to that Twitter post to myself in email. That way I have something back to reference to later rather than trying to scroll through and find that Twitter reference again. But you know, if you were going to be putting out a research article, any keys that you would you normally put in your post as an example? That's a good question. It, it kind of varies. You know, I, I try to focus on what are the key takeaways, right? You only have 280 characters and you're going to use a little bit of that because I'd like to link to the actual, you know, PubMed entry. People want to know a little bit more about it. What is the hook, right? Like what is the, the most important thing that either was kind of informing the research? I think a couple of years ago, I had a post that, that got a, a pretty good retweet and like ratio or whatever, where I had said, you know, the, the based on the Berlin consensus statement in concussion, they said that not enough research was done in kids younger than 12 years old. And so we did that, you know, and it was just kind of like, why is it important? What is the rationale behind the study? Or if you found something really interesting, what is that one sentence or two sentences that really maybe a, a clinician that is in a, not, not in a university setting, but somebody that maybe doesn't have a lot of resources Maybe you have a really nice clinical test that shows some some good prognostic ability or something like that. Just that that one sentence to say, hey, here's why this matters to me and why it might matter to you. I think that those are the most important things. And, and then getting it back to the, like I said, that that link where they, if somebody's interested, they can click through. And, and then from there, you know, maybe it's behind a paywall, unfortunately, as far as the actual PDF of the article goes. And Again, you know, I've had people that reach out directly to me on Twitter and say, hey, can I can you send me a copy of this? Of course, I'm happy to do that. I have it. It's easy to to send that that PDF for professional purposes and educational purposes, even though I can't post it online. So a good way to, again, engage with authors, but then also to get more information if you're interested in it. Agreed. And I think that's sometimes where if people are posting about research, they don't remember to post the link to the actual research, which I think is really critical. It's helpful to be able to go back and click on that. And yes, you're right. You may be stuck behind a paywall or something like that, but at least you've got a link potentially to an abstract on PubMed or something like that. You know, one tool that I use a lot just to shorten down the number of characters, although I think links, if I remember correctly, don't count necessarily into the number of characters, but sometimes it does, is you can use an account called bit.ly, so B-I-T dot L-Y. And if you go to their website, it will actually, you can put in a longer URL for the website and it'll shrink it down to a very short number of characters. And actually the nice thing about bit.ly now too, is they do have a way that you can track how many click-throughs you're getting. So if you're looking for statistics and kind of how that's there, your specific bit.ly little short feed that you do, it will tell you how many times people clicked on it. And same thing with Twitter, you know, you have the ability to do Twitter analytics. If you get interested in Twitter after a while, and you want to see what people are doing, or how influential your tweets are, if you just go to your tweet, and then there is the little part there, if you click on either the likes or retweets, you can see who does that. But you can also on your individual tweets, you can see the tweet statistics on there too. So you know, number of times people clicked on your profile or click through to your link or followed you or just the influence and kind of the the spectrum that your particular tweet made. But let's let's talk a little bit more about Twitter. I know we've talked a lot about a little bit already, but you know, 
I find it an interesting platform. It can be very polarizing at times. We used to have 140 characters, which was really challenging as far as making a succinct tweet. But I think it's a very good tool for you to try and figure out ways to get your point across in that short number of characters. But now we have the luxury of 280 characters. So it was doubled. There may be people who attacked reviews on Twitter as trolls, as we sometimes call them. It's a platform that you can go down that rabbit hole. I know I have fallen down into that rabbit hole on occasion. More from my standpoint, the reason why I've done that is I've wanted to respond to people. I don't feel that necessarily... I'm going to leave an opposing view, not necessarily just out there. I, I, I want to interact. And so I, I want to get an idea of that person's opposing view and kind of challenge them a little bit about why are they have an opposite view as me and, and also get their input too, because I think it's helpful to have that basically contradictory view as far as what you may have posted. But I'd love to hear each of your takes and philosophies, how you approach Twitter and social media just in general. We all have a slight different emphasis and passion about how we do it. So let's start with Caitlin and see how she utilizes it. Specifically regarding trolls, I've been pretty fortunate that I've only had a few interactions with people who seem to be only there to cause problems. I've often wanted to go down rabbit holes or have an interaction with them. But on the flip side, I found that it's almost easier just to ignore them and then maybe even mute them. Especially recently regarding COVID, I found that there are medical trolls around where I'm tweeting recently. And I found that if I ignore them, they move on to some other physician. And it's not like they, they'll change your mind. It's not like they're... I, I also hesitate sometimes to even know if they believe what they're personally saying. A lot of them don't have very many followers themselves, and I find if you just don't respond to them, they won't get any extra attention or views, and it's kind of like ignoring a child when they do something bad, that maybe they'll just stop what they're doing. If I thought they were saying something dangerous, or I wanted to just reinsert my own personal view that's evidence-based, I might follow up with one tweet that just gives the evidence and then probably mute the thread so that I'm not tempted to go back to it. I definitely agree with Caitlin on that point. I think regarding having some evidence, you know, if you're going to engage, at least me personally, and I have not really gone down that rabbit hole, but I've seen other people do it very effectively. If you're going to engage with somebody that's kind of a quote unquote naysayer, and you have some some studies to, to support the views that you're spouting, more than likely, that's going to be more powerful than somebody who's just kind of speaking off the cuff, as oftentimes trolls will spout whatever it is that their agenda or whatever it is that they can use to support their agenda. And maybe there's a dialogue that it's, it's all evidence-based, but I, I think that the more that you can incorporate some sort of basis for the things that you're saying, your interpretation of a study or a specific set of studies that show the thing that you're trying to demonstrate. That, at least from my perspective, and I realize that my world is data and data speaks louder than anything else, but that seems to be the most effective way to at least have a meaningful dialogue and it doesn't just get into name calling, for example. Yeah, I mean, I maybe have a slightly different approach. I mean, I'm completely fine with having conversations on when we can have different points of view, such as, you know, weighted balls and baseball. There's really smart people that can have views on both sides of a topic and, you know, and both have some legitimacy. Um, but when I have someone who is getting, you know, trollish at all, like, I honestly just don't have time for that. Block, goodbye, I don't need you. I really don't engage in much if, if it seems like it's a trollish behavior. Yeah, and I used to have a little different philosophy. I, I, I would engage part because, I, again, I, I didn't want that 
point being left out there. And I, as I've kind of matured, so to speak, in Twitter, I, I ignore more now than I than I did in the past. But I also, if that dialogue back and forth is respectful, then I think it's an encouraging dialogue. If it starts to get into name calling or other things, and you know, various times I've been called a shill on Twitter and things like that, that's when you know that that's the end of the conversation. There's really no reason to kind of go down that role once you start getting into name calling. We can have a mutual respect and disagree with each other, and I think that's healthy for that dialogue. That's healthy for all of us to have that dialogue. But once it gets to be the disrespectful, and then there's the name call, and I think that's where it's time to just move on. And generally, the person will stop. And again, we don't have to go any further down that route. So, Martin. Yeah. Can I ask a question to you? Yeah. You know, I think that a lot of us, as we see these things happen in our mind, we say, oh, this is going to be so satisfying. I'm going to shut this person up. <laughs> uh, does, it, does it ever actually go that way? I, I suspect not, but I'm just kind of curious to get your viewpoint. No, but I'll, you know, I'll tell you a couple of situations that I've had as specific examples where I had that dialogue back and forth with people who I've had some uh, pretty strong disagreements with as far as a particular post that they made or a response they made to a post that I made. So, you know, as example, Chris Nowinski, who's very passionate about what he does with the Concussion Legacy Foundation, I have great respect for Chris. And, and I think we have that mutual respect. We got into a very back and forth that just kept going back and forth. And it was interesting at the time, there were, there were some people out there on Twitter who were actually private messaging me say, keep going with this, keep going with this. And so I'm like, I'm getting this encouragement to, to continue to do this with this person back and forth. And you know, it ended and it ended respectfully. And I got an email from Chris afterwards saying that that was the longest Twitter debate he'd ever had. But we had that mutual respect for each other. You know, we each have our passion for what we do. We weren't downplaying each other, nor were we name calling or anything like that. And I think in a situation like that, that's helpful. And I have had some other situations where clearly, you know, and this is the problem with something like Twitter, you only have so much room to get your point across. And doing a debate is super hard to do that if you're going back and forth with somebody through Twitter. And so it just becomes this this fruitless endeavor when you start going down this route. And, you know, sometimes as we know with emails, as an example, you cannot assess someone's tone through what they post. And so, you know, it may seem like it was snarky or it wasn't, and it came across as that to you, but it really wasn't intended that way. And I've actually, there's a couple of people that I've talked to offline after we've had one of those discussions that clearly it sounds like this person isn't getting what I'm talking about. And we probably have the same endpoint result or endpoint philosophies. And I've actually reached out to those people and a couple of people I've actually called personally and say, hey, let's just have this discussion offline over the phone, the old fashioned way, which is a lot easier. And again, we both realize, yeah, we have the same philosophy here. It just wasn't coming across through that way in Twitter. And and I think that's helpful. I've not had the personal philosophy of blocking people, although actually, interestingly enough, I have had a couple of people that I've blocked recently just because of some very vulgar posts that they've posted on my responses to Twitter. And I don't want those on there because I think that's totally inappropriate or for people to have to see. And so in those situations I have, but otherwise I've not had the philosophy, even with people who have trolled me in the past or have been critical of me in the past, I have not personally gone down the philosophy of blocking them. I think it still is open and I, I don't, I don't want to be that person that says, Hey, I'm going to block you because I just, you know, I don't like your views. We have free speech. And so everybody is entitled to their own opinion. But again, if you're going to be disrespectful for me, I'm not going to engage you at that point. Now it is time for the Pearl of the Podcast. So I'd like to give each of you a chance to give one pearl. So basically, this is the key take-home point from you regarding social media as a healthcare professional. So let's start with Aaron. So my pearl is called the Jumbotron test. And you could maybe also think of this as the billboard test. And so basically, at University of Missouri, our football stadium is right next to our hospital and our orthopedic clinic. And on the backside of the football stadium giant scoreboard 
there is a giant jumbotron that has kind of ads or different things during the week on it. And so the jumbotron test is every time I post something online, I want to make sure that I would be comfortable with it appearing on that jumbotron. So every colleague, every coworker would be able to see it. So if it's okay for all my colleagues and patients to see it for the rest of my life, then it's okay to post online. If I'm like, yeah, I don't really know if I would if I would like my colleagues or my superiors or my patients knowing that or seeing that, then I don't post it online. That's the Jumbotron test. How about you, Caitlin? So my take home is that social media is a very powerful tool where you actually have control over your own online reputation. So if you're not at all involved in social media, if someone Googles you, you have nothing that you're contributing to your reputation. I think social media can be a way for people of any level to become more involved in the sports medicine world. And it's great because it grows with you. It's really limited only by your time and your creativity. How about you, David? I would echo what Caitlin and Aaron have said and use it to your advantage and make it what you want for you. A lot of the themes that we've kind of talked about today and some of the things that I've really tried to put an emphasis on is finding supportive people, people that are uplifting and willing to reciprocate. If you share something interesting of mine, I'll share yours kind of a thing. Use it for whatever purpose you want, whether that's finding new sources of research, expanding your community, showcasing your work, showcasing the work of others. There's a lot of potential uses for it. You know, I think the biggest thing is it's not going anywhere anytime soon, particularly now where we're all socially distanced and, and things like that. It, it does provide a way for us to bring a sense of community in whatever small way that is of people across the country or even across town. And so, and then I think the biggest thing is, you know, opposing viewpoints are okay, but my philosophy is be positive. The more positive people that we have in this space, especially on sports medicine, Twitter, the better, be respectful. And if we all proceed in that way, it can be a really beneficial thing. Absolutely. So I'd like to thank our guests on the podcast today, Dr. Mooney, Dr. Howell, and Dr. Gray for their insights and expertise on social media. It's been great having all of you on. So be sure to check out our entire episode library at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. We also have a social media presence on Facebook by following the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast page. And you can follow us on Twitter at PEDS, that's P-E-D-S, sports, also plural with an S, pod. And please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast streaming service, and we'd love your feedback. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.